All right, welcome back, everybody, to the Green Room Podcast. This is uh, episode 32. Uh, I'm Tony Paul. Uh, I'm not joined this week by Matt Charbonneau, who is on a uh, on a little bit of a uh, furlough week, as has become the norm in the uh, the publishing industry these days. So he's not going to be here this week, but he'll be here next week and the week after, bringing you the podcast while I'm on furlough. Um, but this week, glad to be joined by a longtime colleague of mine and really a mentor um, who uh, really helped has helped me uh, along the way at the Detroit News, um, going from, you know, being able to go from being just a copy editor to, uh, I shouldn't say just a copy editor, obviously copy editor is very important, but uh, uh, from a copy editor to a writer, uh, really, um, if it wasn't for him, I probably wouldn't have be doing it or have done much baseball writing, he kind of took me under his wing. Lynn Henning. Joins us from where the heck are you, Lynn? St. Simons Island, Georgia. All right, we pulled him off the golf pulled pulled him off the golf course just long enough to uh, to talk with us today. Um, how are things going down there? What's life like in Georgia? I know you have a little uh, a few less restrictions than we do up here in uh, in Michigan. Yeah, um, our governor. Brian Kemp not only stole an election last fall, but uh, is as reckless with his uh, COVID-19 policies uh, as he was in uh, running his uh, own uh, election campaign. And um, that's just kind of the way things sometimes work in red states. <laughs> I'm, I, I hold up a few examples there. That That's an apolitical statement. But um, Tony, it's it's a beautiful place to live. It's between Savannah and Jacksonville, and uh, the ocean is uh, not even a mile away here. Um, and you're right; I will be playing golf later this afternoon over at Sea Island with Susie, and uh, that's permitted. And the numbers are low, and the sun is nice, and the sky is blue, and uh, it's been a very blessed place to have relocated to for the past year, which is really just exactly what it is, about a year today. And um, so life, um, even under uh, this particular crisis period, is um, as good as it could be. Uh, it, it really is, Tony. Um, I, I'm lucky. I didn't get knocked out of full-time uh, employment. And um, you can take walks and get fresh air, and um, things are relatively blessed. Very nice. Very nice. Nice that you get to work on your golf game. We just opened up our golf courses up here. No carts. Uh, I haven't walked 18 holes in I don't know how long. Um, so I'm, I'm a little worried about that. It's funny because when I worked at the golf course uh, out of college, you know, and I was a buck 60 soaking wet and in the best shape of my life and walked, I would walk on days I wouldn't work. You know, we played for free. Obviously I'd walk 54 holes. No problem. I, uh, the idea of walking nine holes right now is absolutely terrifying to me. So <laughs> I, well, don't, uh, I don't know how that would work out. You're going to have to get in um, shape here, my man, because um, I expect you to be running marathons by the time this whole thing's over with. Uh, all right. We'll start with nine holes and we'll work our way up to nothing close to a marathon. I can promise you that. Uh, St. Simon's Island, how many famous neighbors do you have? <laughs> oh, you probably, you probably have a few golf. You probably have a few notable golfers down in that area. Well, yeah, of course. Davis Love the Third is a very close family friend of Susie's, uh, and uh, he tragically just lost his. Uh, That's right. Home to a fire uh, last month. He and Robin, uh, Zach Johnson lived right around the corner. 
of course, uh, Masters champion, British Open champion. And, and it is a, 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 a haven for a, a lot of tour golfers. And uh, it's just uh, part of the natural landscape here, the excellent courses and the uh, tremendous practice facilities and so forth over at Sea Island. And um, again, uh, very much uh, appreciate uh, these privileges that have come with the relocation. So it's, uh, it's good living. And, uh, and again, I couldn't be more thankful for it. All right. So let's uh, just recap here. Lynn Henning joining us on the Green Room Podcast. Lynn joined the Detroit News. Now, correct me if I have any of these things wrong. Uh, but uh, you joined the news in 1979. Is that correct? Correct. 1979. You went to Michigan State. You grew up in St. John's. Is that or St. Yes. Saint, or yes. Okay. The mint capital of Michigan. The what capital? What capital? The mint spearmint capital of Michigan. I was raised on a mint farm up in wow. St. John's. I didn't know there was such thing as a mint farm. Oh yeah, <laughs> twenty miles so. away, my man. That that uh, that that produced more native spearmint oil than any place in the world right wow. there in that uh, area of St. John's, the mucklands that I knew too well and uh, got too dirty from, but uh, that will induce you in a hurry to uh, decide that you want to do something else occupationally. Wow. <laughs> you know, I worked at a, I worked at a muck farm um, when I was probably 15 years old. I worked there for two days. Yeah. <laughs> and I'd had enough. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, fortunately, I didn't have any choice, but I, I probably wouldn't have gone two days. But anyway, no, no, it was it was a great way of life. We also had livestock periodically sure. through sure. that period. Edie had a Holstein dairy cattle my dad had with his brothers uh, just a mile away. Uh, we had 400 head of hogs on our place at one point. Uh, that probably... Uh, motivated me more than the mint farming did to get into another line of work. But uh, I was a farm boy and uh, to have had that experience, the ultimately rural experience went with the ultimately urban experience because as you say, yes, I moved to Detroit in 79 and I was there for 40 years before uh, moving down here. All right, so yeah, Layden worked in Detroit News 1979 to 2019, retired. I think his last day might have been February 1st, 2019. 2019, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so 40 years at, at the news. He covered everything, obviously, covered um, you know, Tigers um, for many, many years, covered uh, Michigan's, um, you know, he covered Michigan, he covered everything, right? You know, but obviously, Michigan State is a big. A big part of your background, you went to Michigan State, you started covering them at Michigan State. I think you spent some time in the Lansing State Journal covering them before you went to the Detroit News. Michigan State obviously is a big part of your history, and uh, obviously this is a Michigan State podcast, so I want to touch on a few things that we're going to talk about in the current situation. We'll also talk about some historical stuff because Lynn is just a just a, uh, a treasure trove of, of, uh, of historical facts and, and, uh, and insight. But first, I just wanted to, you know, touch on the current situation. Um, the, the Mark D'Antonio era suddenly came to an end um, not that long ago. Um, I think we were all a little surprised maybe it happened as quickly as it did. You know, we thought maybe another year or two, um, but that came to an end. Um, they hired Mel Tucker in a, you know, a search that left people at Colorado feeling a bit stung, although I don't understand that point of view. It's college athletics. You know, yes. you know, you get you get a better job offer and you get a lot more money than you know you take the job most times. 
Um, but um, I wanted to touch on that a little bit. Um, first, just the current state of the program uh, under Tucker. What do you know about him? What have you read about him, heard about him? Um, where do you think the program is under him? It's so tough to tell right now because really he hasn't been able to do much other than recruit over the phone. Um, but what did you make of the hire and what did you make of the kind of the, the backlash from people in Colorado and really a lot of people just outside of Michigan State national pundits and, and stuff like that? I thought the Tucker hire was brilliant. Uh, it was aggressive on Michigan State's part. Uh, they really decided that uh, they couldn't go with uh, someone tired or a retread. And so they spent the money, they got aggressive, and they did what a lot of people have done to them through the years. They grabbed a coach, which is what happens in American commerce. Right. You hire people away from other places. Right. So the hypocrisy that is shown by some who think that well, he left those kids. Listen, universities never worry about those kids when they want to fire a coach. Right. They don't work about that they don't worry about that coach's commitment to the recruits when they want to get rid of a guy. But suddenly now Michigan State was this villain because they went in and offered a guy a better job, and he accepted a better job. And somehow that just doesn't work, except, of course, when it's your place hiring someone, then it's fine. Or when you, in the process of sending out your resumes to new employers, attempting to get a new job, might want to remember that this is a two-way street. It's not simply a one-way deal for a coach any more than it is for a doctor or for a teacher or for a salesperson or a marketer or whatever the case might be. This is called America, mm -hmm. and you can take better jobs, particularly, again, when Colorado's track record, as it is at most places, is they fired plenty of coaches through the right. years. And uh, so the commitment uh, seems to only go one way in the eyes of some people. Right. And I think that's nonsense. I never blamed LSU or Nick Saban in 1999. Right. Now, there was a reason for that, too. Right. Um, right. That was a different deal. Uh, mm -hmm. Saban actually wanted to stay and uh, was essentially drummed out by President M. Peter McPherson. Right. But anyway, back to your original question. Um, I thought it was a terrific hire. I think uh, you emanate or you sense what's emanating from those offices right now, Tony, is very clear, palpable energy from Mel Tucker's offices. Um, I think their recruiting start here has been um, beyond satisfactory. There are three stars, but uh, for him to get a ground floor this year and to widen their recruiting base, I think is really strong. Yeah. Uh, and so all the things that he's doing right now, even in the midst of this, of this turmoil, uh, I think um, they point to the fact that Michigan State made a very smart and, and very admirable hire here in Mel Tucker. Right. Now, you touched on Nick Saban, and uh, I want to touch on, uh, and again, we're going to talk some current stuff, we're going to talk some old stuff. Uh, I want to talk about Nick Saban. That's one of the uh, past, you know, insights that I want to get into with you in a little bit here. So I appreciate you bringing that up. But um, as far as Tucker, I, I, you know, I think the one thing, you know, he didn't help himself when he made such strong comments about how he was staying, you know, and I think that that kind of added to the whole, you know, the whole outrage that he left because he made the strong comment on Twitter that he's staying in Colorado. And then he was with donors the night before he accepted the Michigan state job. So I think that all plays into it, but I think you're absolutely right. 
you know, look, if we all get offered double our salary, unless we're really happy where we're at, we're going to go. And so well, I also, yeah, Tony, I think it, it must be remembered what he said there about staying, he was being truthful about right. the counteroffer had not come from Michigan state yet. Right. And to have turned down a counteroffer like that would in my mind have been just silly. Exactly. Um, there's, there's no higher um, moral order here that's being observed by saying, well, I brought those kids in and, and I have a counter. Again, it makes no difference on the university side when they want to jettison a coach. It's mm-hmm. got to be looked at in, in a dual fashion. If it's smart for a university to toss onto the ash can its coach, that coach has the right at any point to accept a better job. I think that is simply a consistency in American business, and it's got to be viewed as such. Right. Um, you've covered a lot of Michigan State coaching searches uh, in football um, over the years. Um, I, I guess where does this one rank as far as, I mean, it's too early to tell on the field, obviously, but in your eyes, where does this one rank as effectiveness, um, you know, clarity, you know, like they had a focus, like they had a plan? Um, of all the coaching searches that you've covered at Michigan State, where does this one fall in line as far as if you had to put a pecking order? Of, of, of how well they got it done. Uh, because of the way in which uh, the sequencing of events occurred. Now, go back to last autumn. I did a column last October 30th or 31st saying that I thought Mark D'Antonio uh, needed to make this his last season. You could see that the energy level had waned, the recruiting had slipped, and this was all the hallmark of not a man being weak in his job, simply a man who was approaching retirement age. It happens. I went back to Duffy Doherty's example there and followed it up the timeline because you're right, I've covered all of those coaching searches since Doherty retired in 1972, and this one was different. But this did nothing to disqualify Mark D'Antonio's landmark presence at Michigan State. He did inordinately great work, but he had gotten to the end of the expiration date there. And he needed, I thought, in advance of January to say, this is it. Uh, now, I understand, of course, there was the bonus in January. That could have all been negotiated to be Absolutely. paid. Absolutely. It, it, but, Tony, I don't really think, contrary to a lot of people, that the timing of this thing was all that bad. It happened after re- recruits were already in fold. In other words, you weren't going to tear up Colorado's recruiting season. You weren't going to disrupt uh, Michigan State's at that point. Um, and, and really, that's the truth. Those kids mostly had committed, and you're committing to a university, not just to a coach. You're committing primarily to a university. Yeah, you know, in, in, in theory you are, you know, you in theory, but there's just so many kids that are just so tied in and so – you know, tied into these coaches. Um, they, they, they are, but they also understand the realities. Right. And they understand the reality of that coach being fired is greater than the thought that that coach is going to move on to a better job. It, it, it simply is part of the equation, Tony, mm-hmm. that any athlete understands when he or she commits to a university. There yeah, are no, I'll give you that. I'll no give you absolutes that, but- there. No, I'll give you that. I, I think that that reality is more in place with kids already there who are 20 and 21 as opposed to 17, 18-year-olds coming in. I'm not sure they quite grasp that 
to the level of the kids that are a little bit older. I mean, I would committing I don't, primarily know. to, but Tony, I would disagree. You're committing primarily to a college community, to a college campus. And there is an academic element to this too. And yes, the coach is the front man for you, but it is not he who is the all encompassing entity here. It's the university galaxy more than it's going to be a particular coach, even as pivotal as that relationship it is. But you don't, if you're Mel Tucker, say, well, gee, I brought those kids in this year and I, I better stick. It's no, a matter of time until Mel Tucker is going to be out the door as Colorado coach. That's simply the way this business works. In the interim, Colorado right. will be fine. Institutionally, they are enduring. Right. And they will be just absolutely back on track with, with their, their new coach and administration. It was not Mel Tucker or nothing for Colorado. Mm. Similarly, Michigan State would be fine with another choice, but they made an absolutely brilliant move in my mind in identifying a guy who was in his 40s, was an excellent recruiter, had knowledge of Michigan State in the Big Ten, had coached here briefly, coached at Ohio State, this was a great hire for MSU, particularly when a guy from Cleveland has his moorings in the Midwest and right. could return to this particular place. So yeah. uh, they're, 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 the last thing that I found to be disturbing about this is that Mel Tucker left Boulder, Colorado in the middle of February. I, I thought this was just how this sports game is played. And if you're not going to be interested in accepting that reality, uh, then I think you're in for a tough, tough road uh, mm -hmm. trying to follow sports on the collegiate or on the professional level. It doesn't work that way. Right. I mean, a school like Michigan, I mean, you know, look, there's, there's a, there's a trickle down effect to, to college coaching situations, you know, if, and if a, uh, an opening opens up at a big 10 school in February, well then, you know, your school better, you know, brace for the possibility that you could lose a coach. Right. I mean, it's just the trickle down effect. I mean, Michigan state's not going to go after, they're not going to be have forced to hire an assistant coach from somewhere just because of the timing of it. That's just not the reality no, I, of the situation. Well, there was another specter here, too, that really disturbed me, and that was this possibility that they might go get Pat um, Narduzzi or they might hire Brett Bielema or they might get um, uh, Shermer. Um, Pat, Pat Shermer. And any of those guys, to me, would have been – absolutely going down a wrong road. They are well into their 50s in all the cases. They're not going to come in here and give you longevity, even if you do get them back on track. And there was nothing to suggest at that point that uh, these guys were going to have, frankly, uh, the recruiting and coaching edge that Mel Tucker offers. And so, again, I, I applaud Michigan State. Too many times in the past, Tony, they've made the absolutely boneheaded decision at the worst time. And I don't care if it was hiring Muddy Waters or Bobby Williams or John L. Smith. They had to show this time that they were brighter and better people in that. And boy, they did. And I applaud Bill Beekman and, and the Board of Trustees members who acted assertively here and the university at large for understanding how important this appointment was because they were about to go on the rocks. Their season oh, ticket holders yeah. were not coming back in big numbers. 
and uh, this thing had a chance to really go into semi-oblivion. Now they've oh. got uh, the battery recharged, and this is going to be a good football program under Mel Tucker. Yeah, no, it was. They were maybe a day away from going into the tank uh, with the season ticket holders because obviously oh, yeah. everyone, everyone focused on Luke Fickle. Everyone thought Luke Fickle was the guy. Of course, yeah. he would have brought a lot of energy to the program. And then yep. you get the video of Beekman coming back on the plane alone to Lansing. And uh, everyone's like, what the hell's going on here? You know, what? How, yeah. how did they mess this up? And then in the span of 24 hours, they land Mel Tucker, which could not have been a bigger uh, a bigger. Uh, life preserver, really. Even if Mel Tucker was, as they say, one of the one of the, maybe the one A choice, I still think the one A choice was was Fickle, and one B was Tucker. Oh, sure. Uh, you know they'll they'll deny that. They'll they'll say there was no offer made to Fickle. I don't believe that. Um, but um, you know, in the span of twenty four hours, they really turned this thing around. And you know, interestingly, and you, you touched on Nick Saban a little bit earlier, but <clears throat> oh, by the way, the one other thing too. Tucker came in and I think did a great job with his staff. I think keeping trust yes. was great. Getting Barnett back was great. Getting a big right. time defensive defensive coordinator in there was great. Um, really kind of, you know, brought in a nice mix of people. But you touched on Nick Saban earlier. And this I found very interesting because apparently the day that D'Antonio announced his re- retirement, uh, he was on the phone, um, Saban, of course, with his longtime buddy, Joel Ferguson. Um, the trustee of Michigan State, but he was on. Saban was on the phone with Ferguson that day, and the first name he mentioned was Mel Tucker. And he ended, and then Saban yeah. ended up talking to Beekman, and uh, I uh, and ended up basically helping them and re- and helping the recruitment throughout this process. I thought that was very interesting that Saban would still have what is perceived to me as a vested interest in, in the success of Michigan State. Well, he does, Tony, and, and in fact, again, one of the real tragedies in MSU sports history is that Saban was essentially driven to that LSU job by Peter McPherson. Nick Saban and Terry Saban wanted to stay in East Lansing, and even though the situation was semi-untenable, he was making less money than Tom Izzo, he had been jobbed out of a $150,000 bonus. Uh, that came by virtue of the stock market going crazy in the late 90s that McPherson didn't believe he could sell to the board, et cetera, et cetera. And then uh, McPherson, uh, and and I couldn't believe this. Um, When I spoke with him for the book, the second book, Spartan Seasons 2. Available on Amazon right now, five-star rating. Go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) He he, uh, informed me that – no, he had not been to a college football game from his student days until he ascended as president of Michigan State, but that he believed Nick wasn't a good second-half coach. Now, <laughs> starting with a supposition that th- this is not uh, a, a man who's really in position to make that kind of assessment with any degree of credibility, there's a reason that Michigan State was running out of gas in those second halves. They had 71 players on scholarship in the 1998 season, the year before Saban went 9-2. and two. 71 players. That's 14 beneath the limit. That's 20% of your roster they didn't even have on scholarship because of all the attrition following the George Perlis years. And all of those things never seem to be considered uh, on even uh, a, a base level up there, uh, administratively in appraising Nick. Oh, Tom Izzo knew how good he was. And if Tom had not been on a road trip at that point, I think he would have saved uh, Nick's job and, and, and Nick would have stayed. 
But McPherson personally drove him out. And he, and he did with a 5 a.m. phone call uh, on that morning after Terry had been at LSU. And, and the Sabans had decided to stay, even for less money. They were going to get the contract fattened a little bit down the road. But the Sabans had decided to stay. And um, McPherson was, uh, in Nick's mind, very bellicose during their conversation at, at uh, dawn that morning. And he said, that's it. We're going. And that's how history changes. See, that's so fascinating to me. I remember my first year at Michigan State was 1999, the fall. So obviously a great football season. I think they started 6-0 and and beat Michigan to go 6-0 and or 7-0, and one of the two. Great game, obviously. They were both undefeated going into that game. Um, and then obviously, you know, finish 9-2 or whatever it was. And then they, this whole, you know, will he or won't he leave? And the crazy thing is, is at the time, the narrative was, Oh, Nick wants to leave. And, uh, and, and you're saying, and, and as my conversation no. with you over the years, that's just not true. No. Uh, um, can you give us a little bit of detail about wh- what kind of money there was there and, and why they wanted to stay in the first place for less money? Of course, uh, Saban had coached at Michigan State under George uh, right. as his defensive coordinator. Uh, and, um, he and Terry, for all of the travels they had made at that point, uh, on the coaching road, liked East Lansing the most. They liked the town. They liked the university community. They loved everything about it. To them, it was home. And they really did want to make this a, at least a semi-permanent stay. And... Uh, again, remember, Tony, the, the money, money is going to be an issue. That what you want to do is let your coach know when that coach is good, right. is to let him know how much he's appreciated. You don't subject him to this constant grinding reality that Saban had to accept, where he just knew the president had no real use for him. He, he had no relationship with the athletic director, Merritt Norvell, and if you know you are a coach as good as Nick Saban is, and he knew it, and LSU and plenty of other places knew it, Bill Belichick knew it, uh, where, of course, Nick had been coordinator before he got the MSU job, uh, there's a point where you're just going to push this person by way of disrespect to say enough is enough. And that's what McPherson did with Saban in 1999. McPherson had no clue that Nick Saban was an elite coach. None whatsoever. In his view, he was a mediocre coach. Well, if you're a president taking that disposition toward Nick Saban, you're going to get what you deserve. And unfortunately, your fans are going to get something they didn't deserve, and that was to see Nick Saban head off to Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Right. Yeah, McPherson had no no clue about sports, um, had no interest in sports. Um and, and that second half comment that he made to you just cracks me up. It, it, how uh, about that? <laughs> it's like, you know, it's like me trying to teach a course on economics. You know, it's like, uh, <laughs> I, I don't, you know, sometimes you just, you know, it's amazing that McPherson didn't have, and you said Izzo was on the road at the time, uh, but it's amazing to me yeah. that McPherson didn't have anybody in his ear going, what on earth are you doing? Like, this guy is legit. You know, we've got a guy here who wants to be here. He knows what he's doing. How is there nobody 
in McPherson's ear at that point to advise him. I, I don't believe you're only that as good was, as the people. Are, you're only as good as the people right. around you, and and the fact that there was no one there to to stop him from this nonsense is amazing. No, and and Clarence Underwood should have gotten more involved there, uh, aggressively letting uh, McPherson know that no, you can't make this mistake. Joel Ferguson should have been more assertive about that. Uh, but there, there was a, a fall down on the part of the entire MSU administration. And of course, Merritt Novell was really out of the loop. He, he certainly wasn't going to have any problem if Saban, the guy that wouldn't even talk with him at that stage, uh, was going to go elsewhere. But that was Merritt Novell's shortcoming. Within a few months, he was gone as well. And so um, it, it just gets back to the same thing, Tony. Uh, these mistakes that have been made traditionally, and I shouldn't say traditionally, but at too many junctures in Michigan State sports history have all begotten unnecessary grief and strife in East Lansing. And uh, again, I go back to uh, um, the Doherty dismissal, um, what ensued there, uh, especially especially when um, George Perlis was not hired in 79 after Darrell Rogers left, in muddy waters was brought on. And I knew from the moment of the announcement, we were waiting three years till he was going to be fired and the next coach was going to be brought in. It was going to be three wasted football years at Michigan State. And it was. Same problem with Bobby Williams. It wasn't as apparent, but it was my gut feeling that that was not going to work out. It didn't. And of course, that was uh, an uninspired hire of John L. Smith which was a Ron Mason mistake, and John L. Smith was never going to be the answer in East Lansing. So th this thing has about it way too much tradition and heritage of just making blunders that were not repeated in February, just at the point that I thought for sure they were going to be. Right. Yeah, the last two hires, I guess, uh, obviously the D'Antonio hire, and then this one certainly has the makings of, of something that could work out very well. Um, you know, it's, it's crazy when you think about it because, you know, Nick Saban would have not spent his entire career at Michigan State. I mean, he was going to eventually, um, you know, probably move on. Um, but it's interesting how that situation might have changed the course of college football history with where, you know, just the timing and where he ended up. And, you know, who knows if he would have ended up at Alabama and, you know, become what many would consider the greatest college football coach of all time. It's crazy that that one that McPherson's ignorance <laughs> might have changed the course of college football history. I think uh, you, you can f focus on two thoughts here. Uh, first of all, there definitely would have been a chance that Saban would have tried the NFL at some point down the line. But if he was going to remain a college football coach, there is no reason to believe that East Lansing would not have been just fine with him and with Terry uh, for the duration of his career, as long as Michigan State was taking care of him. And I think they were probably within a year or so of arriving at that point, because his recruiting was steadily picking up at that point. He now had a quorum of players, which is why they went nine and two in 1999. And Nick Saban, as we know, can recruit anywhere. He's one of the best recruiters as well as perhaps the best college football coach of all time. And he was going to steadily dent that Michigan and Ohio State kingship 
on the regional recruiting front. Uh, there's no way he would not have. He was in the process of doing so. But uh, th this is the, the tragedy because uh, you, you could have had at Michigan State uh, recurring nationally competitive teams. I'm talking about national championship competitive teams. And uh, I, I would submit that there's no way that Saban would not have had that program right where he's had an LSU team that he had to completely resurrect from ashes. And then uh, an Alabama team that he straightened out uh, immediately and, and then has won five times with. Yeah. So I, I know Tony, I think, I think, yeah, there would have been the possibility of him going down the NFL road, but um, I really firmly believe um, East Lansing could have been home not only permanently, but for a long time thereafter. Yeah, but you got to understand why some people would be skeptical at that, you know, because he has the reputation of, you know, not he did in Alabama. 1999. He, he no, no, he didn't in 1999, but he does have it now, you know, and he has bounced around, and then now he's found his obviously his place, obviously in Alabama. Well, Tony, he's been at he's been at two jobs the last 20 years. Well, he had the Miami I, I think Dolphins that's pretty good. too. I mean, he had the Miami. Well, okay, yeah, two college. Correct. Correct. I understand that. Yeah. But but again, keep in mind. He didn't go to LSU because he wanted to. Right. He was essentially driven out. He and Terry loved East Lansing. And there is no reason to believe anymore. He, listen, he hasn't wanted to leave Alabama. Right. Uh, right. Now, I, again, I think for the lure of an NFL job down the road, he probably would have gotten restless and said yes. Um, I think it's also possible and conceivable that Michigan State might have come at him after a few years in the NFL and, and done the same thing with him that Alabama did. Right. Uh, you know, seriously, I, 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 I think when you have – that's the reason his relationship with MSU is maintained. Yeah. What you just pointed out, that he was right. a, a reference on, on the, the Tucker heart. There's a reason for that. He, right. has he was great, more than that. Yeah. I mean, he was almost a search firm. <laughs> I mean, well, sure. Uh, I mean, but that tells you everything yeah. about Nick and his relationship with East Lansing and with Michigan right. State. It was right. just those per persons at that time that uh, created uh, uh, the, the problems. Right. Well, see, that's funny because I read in the free press that he couldn't handle the Michigan rivalry. Oh, so he well, had to get <laughs> I refuted that on Twitter that day in no uncertain terms. That is the biggest bunch of blarney you're, you're going to hear. It had nothing to do with that. That was a convenient little throw out something that they're going to chomp on down at LSU rather than tell them that, no, the president drove me out. He was going to say something of, of a fictional nature that sounded good. No, that was absolutely balderdash and i said that that day on twitter i saw that story and it was hokum i, I know it was written in the chicago <laughs> tribune elsewhere in a couple of places that story is invalid <laughs> i just wanted to get you other than that i have no opinions about it <laughs> yeah. oh i like your use of balderdash for those of you who don't know lynn doesn't like this <laughs> lynn, lynn rarely swears the first time that uh, we were on the golf course together <laughs> The first time we had in the golf course together, he had a he had a slice right out of the Judge Smales playbook, and I think it, I think your I think your retort to that was "God bless America" or "Sugar Jets" or something like that. So, <laughs> I, I think I think I've heard you. 
I think I've heard you swear one time in my life, and it was one of the times we were in Florida together for the winter meetings, and we got lost on one of the freeways. And I think that's the only time I've ever heard you swear. So, well, uh, it's since I nearly <laughs> killed us both that night, I suppose that was worth a, a bad word or two. Yeah, it was a we had a we had a, quite the experience. It was a good time. Um, uh, let's wrap up Saban a little bit here. First of all, I've never met Nick Saban. I find him so fascinating. Um, mm-hmm. Just his personality. Um, you rarely see him smile, but what is he like, like one-on-one you've sat down with him many times. I mean, what is he, what do, you, what do you get to see that the public doesn't get to see from him? Excellent. You can always have a, a very good conversation with Nick Saban. And I mean, relaxed, casual, uh, it's probably going to be of, of relative seriousness. You're not going to sit around and tell a bunch of jokes and all that. that no, no. But you're going to have a very, very meaningful conversation with him. I don't care about it, whatever it might be, football, kids. Um, there's a reason that he and Terry have been married, let's see now, 47 years. Mm-hmm. And she's got a personality, you know, that won't quit. There, well, there's a reason for that. The substance, but Nick's got a good, dry sense of humor. He gets a kick out of things. Uh, but it's, it's, I think what throws people off is, of course, is the intensity, the fire blast furnace that he brings to the sidelines and to football. And that's the reason he's won seven national championships um, or six or whatever it is. And he simply is that good and that uh, committed to it. And he expects players to be in, in the same manner um, operating at full throttle that creates an intensity that can exceed him. It, it's like uh, an aura in which he's wrapped. And I think that's where, uh, Tony, the, the perception that this is a, 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 some kind of alien uh, rather than a human being uh, sometimes stems, but no, I, I like him immensely. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, um, I, I knew after the, 2002 season and the Lions had just fired is it Mariucci um, anyway I, uh, I knew that there was a chance that uh, I talked with him on Christmas Eve from Baton Rouge and I'll tell you this right now that was a year before he left no a year before he won the national championship but I knew if the Lions had gone after him they were going to get Nick Saban as, as head football coach and that that might be where they when they hired uh, um, Rod, um, I, the, the Marinelli, and um, I, I think Tony, you have to understand that um, this is a guy who yeah had a certain degree oh, wait, of no, wanderlust. No. No, they fired Morningweg and they hired Mariucci. Oh, pardon me, Morningweg and then Mariucci. Um, excuse me, I was missing the Morningweg. Yeah. Uh, Mariucci would have been the guy that they ended up hiring, yeah. Yeah, Mariucci they got. Okay, that's, that's the way it went. I, I think um, Nick would have been very open to that. Now, the next year he won a national championship at LSU, and I don't think he minded staying at all. I, I believe, though, he was the man drawn to the Midwest, and until he got ensconced at Alabama, I'm not sure either of those two stops at Baton Rouge or Miami felt good. When he got to Alabama and could have such immediate success and have everything a coach could want, I think then you get real comfortable. But right. there is no question in my mind, Tony, 
Um, and he had told me East Lansing was where we felt at home. Yeah. Um, yeah, I wish we all could age like Nick Saban. I look at pictures of him oh from his time God. at Michi Michigan State, and he looks 10 Nothing's years older changed. than he does. He looks older then than he looks now. <laughs> He'll be 69 years old on that's, Halloween Day. That's incredible. That's incredible. Um, the Nick Saban, obviously, they turned to Bobby Williams, just a disastrous hire. And, the, and the, you know, the ironic thing is the guy who knows nothing about football who let Nick Saban walk basically hired Bobby Williams because the players held a protest and walked to Cowell's house on campus, basically demanding they hire Bobby Williams. And uh, McPherson basically was somewhat swayed by that. And uh, that ended up being a disaster. And then John Allen, they finally got it right with Mark D'Antonio. Uh, right. And, and uh, uh, you know, not a big name when he came to East Lansing, um, but uh, wanted to touch on him a little bit. You've had a lot of conversations with him over the years. Um, what, I mean, just a tremendous era of Michigan State football. I mean, yeah. Uh, just tremendous. Uh, what he was able to take, which was nothing, and build it into a team that went to the national champ or the national semifinals um, against, ironically, Nick Saban and uh, Alabama. Um, but what, happened we all know how great that era was but what happened over the last four years in your estimation how did the program kind of become stagnant how did we end up here he had definitely hit lightning with a bunch of recruits uh, earlier and the the darkies denards and those guys that, that that weren't really all that highly evaluated uh and he had found them and i think that created a mystique that was a bit enlarged I think it was tremendous work on Mark D'Antonio's front. I also think he got um, a tremendous amount of luck involved. And uh, he got players during an interlude when Michigan was not on top that also helped them steal uh, a couple of trips uh, to the uh, Big Ten title game. Uh, and, and, of course, he was very, very, very good at uh, having these players somewhat overachieve against Ohio State. Uh, Mark D'Antonio did it all right. He probably melded substance and optimum performance about as well as I think a coach can do with, with college kids. But you have to remember, Tony, if it isn't being sustained by a fair number of four-star recruits, uh, you're going to have a hard time beating the four-star recruit teams. Mm -hmm. And uh, things fell apart that year. They thought they had really a great bumper crop, and then they ended up with yeah, the, the dream uh, some team. of those kids in, in legal troubles. Yeah, and, legal uh, troubles and I mean, are serious. Yeah. 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 You know, and, and serious sexual assault and all the stuff that went on there. That tells you right there, Tony, that some things are, are not uh, any more properly aligned. And really, the last few years, that was, in my estimation, not, again, a, any fundamental weakness on Mark D'Antonio's part. It's a product of getting into your 60s. This yeah. is a hard profession to keep that edge going in your 60s. Uh, e even with Knicks teams down in Alabama now, you've seen they've been stretched a little thin the last, in, in terms of national titles. You know, they had to beat Georgia with that uh, Tua pass. Uh, in, in, in overtime, um, it, they had a tough year last year. LSU surpassing them. Um, Clemson's in, in a driver's seat down there. Georgia very likely now is a little stronger than Alabama. Why is that? I'll tell you why. 
is because a coach gets older and things begin to decline just enough, just enough to where um, younger programs, younger dynamic coaches and so forth can sometimes get that edge that you once had. And I saw that happen with Mark D'Antonio, which is why I wrote last October. Mark needs to be very honest with himself. And this is a man I thought was very introspective. And he needs to say, this is at a point where we're not getting it back. And he was not getting it back this year. Even without the pandemic, the recruiting class was uninspiring. He lost much of his defense. He's going to have a new quarterback. Uh, I thought they were going to be lucky to uh, win three, four games this year. Right. And uh, Tucker, I think, uh, has, has brought, uh, again, energy and um, some new personnel to the picture that uh, it's going to be probably a, a, a tough year for them to break even uh, if they do play. But there is no doubt in my mind that they have a program now that's absolutely back on uh, the road. And uh, he's going to do very, very, very well there. What um... – with with D'Antonio, um, what do you make of the whole? He's very stubborn, as most head coaches are. Yeah, they're going to have their way. Um, but what do you make of the the loyalty to staff, and and how do you think that impacted as far as not switching staff? And last year he kind of, he, he kind of reshuffled the chairs on the Titanic, you know, as they say, but didn't really let anybody go. I think he only fired one coach in his entire time at Michigan yeah. State. Um, that stood out, especially as the offensive play calling became uninspiring. Um, you did have an athletic quarterback in Brian Lewerke. I know a lot of people will criticize um, Lewerke, but the kid could run and he could throw. Um, he had some injury issues. But what do you make of the loyalty D'Antonio showed and how do you, to his coaches and keeping them, how do you think that impacted the last couple of years? Do you think he should have been a little bit more bold and a little bit more aggressive and maybe say, you know what, we need to – we need to try something new here. I have a different view. Okay. Uh, you I always do. Needed, and you always do. <laughs> <laughs> I think he needed to change the players on the field. I, I think assistants are as good as their players on the field. And the personnel uh, deficiencies at Michigan State were manifest the last three or four years. That coincides with all the conclusions from afar that the assistants weren't any good. Well, they're the same assistants were really good when they had better players. And so uh, that, to me, is where you begin. Not to say that assistants aren't going to have some bearing on this thing. Of course they are. But the idea, again, the notion that you're going to bring in a, 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 a whip snapper and call all kinds of plays that are not with that offensive line, not with that dearth of receivers, not with a running game as, as, as incomplete as theirs was, you're not going to do any more, Tony, than they were doing on offense. I don't care who's calling those plays. Not enough to make a significant difference in your season. That will only change with better horses on the field, and that's where things had slipped most dramatically and most clearly to me the last three or four years there. I would agree with you specifically this year, but I think they did have, I think they did have some more weapons the previous couple of years. I don't know. I mean, look. You well, know. Look, look at the season before. Fel no. Felton Davis was their go-to guy. He goes down with an Achilles. They had nobody else. There, there, had, Tony, there was not enough personnel there the last few years. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it just, it, you could see it in the recruiting classes, and it was going to end up 
being a case where chickens were roosting and uh, this thing was not going to get better, which is why I thought last October I wrote that and I wrote it, you know, that was not uh, an altogether well-received column by everybody because it, it made it look like I was indicting Mac, Mark and D'Antoni or something. No, not indicting, saying enough. This is this has gone far enough. You've had a marvelous career. You're one of the Mount Rushmore figures in Michigan State sports history. But your retirement age, and it's time to acknowledge some things and turn it over to a new man. Uh, he did it belatedly. Uh, but uh, again, I thought it was the call that had to be made. This thing was not going to get better this year. It was going to get worse for him. And I hated to see that kind of blemish accompanying him on the way out. Yeah. You wrote the column in October. In November, finally, after being asked these questions, he finally came out and said he's coming back. He wants to start when he finishes. Yeah. And then, in, and then he gets his bonus January 15th. Again, the bonus is overblown. He was going to get yeah. this bonus one way or another. That, you know, sure. if he, it, it wasn't like he, if he would have retired the day before the bonus was due, he wouldn't get anything. They would have negotiated. The bonus you know, is overblown. I certainly don't believe he stayed just to collect the bonus. My question is, you come out and, again, why co when you come out and say something and then you do something different, the people's eyebrows go up. And that's, you know, they, that's where people get intrigued. What changed from November to February with Mark D'Antonio? Reality. Um, I, I think you're right. He but he knew the, but he knew the reality of the, of the prospect. And that's why, I, and I'll just cut you off really quick. In November, I was stunned that he came out and said he was coming back. And he wanted to start what he finished. Because Charbonneau and I talked about this. And I said, if he's going to start what he's finishing, this is going to take four or five years. So, yeah, I mean, right. if, you're, if you're committing to finishing what you started, I mean, it's not going to happen this year or next year. It's not going to happen at all at that point. So he, no. he had to have known the realities. And that's why I just found it odd that he was so forceful in November and then in February he decides to walk away. So I'm sorry, back to you. No, no, I, 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 I agree with you. Um, uh, but I, I think it goes back to the point you were making. Uh, a, a man like D'Antonio is supremely confident in his ability to get kids re-inspired and reinvigorated. Uh, that is a part of a good coach's self-esteem. Yeah, he is also aware that he's a man of pride. And I thought that combination um, probably was working against him in that assessment. I, I believe after he'd had a month to reflect on it, and not coincidentally at a point when uh, your revelations and so forth indicated in the, in the paper just how serious were these sexual assault uh, episodes. Uh, I think it, uh, coupled with uh, oncoming litigation, uh, I think it, it, it definitely had to have been a factor. But primarily, Tony, I think he believed, uh, he really believed he was going to get this thing uh, straightened out and, and back at sea level. But uh, you and I agree, and I think most people did at that point, you're not going to get this program uh, resurrected in 2020, and it's not likely to resurrect uh, in the ensuing seasons, not when right. he was uh, on the verge of, uh, again, official retirement age. Right. He just looked tired. You know, at yeah. that press conference, he just looked as tired as I've ever seen him. I mean, he just, I agree. And I, and I kind of agree with you. I think – uh, the reality set in of the team, uh, I don't think the court proceedings were the reason or the NCAA violation allegations were the reason. 
Um, they were, first of all, they're in the grand scheme of things, the NCAA allegations that came out in court are, are minor in the grand scheme of things. Um, the sexual assault stuff obviously is not. Um, that's major. Um, but I think the totality of everything, I think just the on-field, the prospects for the future, and then everything that was going on legally, I think just he's tired. And that's what he looked like to yeah. me. And I think he was just, I mean, he was exhausted. At that point, a coach needs to say, enough. I've, right. I've had a great run. Uh, and, and you can't let your assistants, they're, because they're not going to benefit Tony by hanging on during a bad season. All right. that's going to do is, is, is probably reduce their own market value. So the right call was made. A, it, a funky timing for sure, but the right call was made. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's funny that the most successful Michigan State coaches, the last two, are guys that never smile. And I don't know, Mel Tucker, <laughs> Mel Tucker smiles a little bit too much. That could be, could be in trouble. We'll see. Well, uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll see if he's smiling after that first game. Yeah, <laughs> yeah probably. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> whatever, whatever that first game is, sometime in 2021. Yeah, um, we're afraid so, of that. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Uh, George Perlis, just uh, I never covered him, never met him. Give me a George Perlis story. Great character, oh, obviously. Gosh. I pick one. I mean, I uh, had gotten to know him uh, well during the uh, recruitment, quote unquote, of Muddy Waters, uh, because it looked like George for sure had the job. And at that point, of course, he was uh, he had just left the Philadelphia, left the Steelers. Uh, during the uh, Steel Curtain heyday and had signed on to be coach of the Philadelphia Stars of the USFL. But I got very well acquainted with him during that time. I was on the phone with him all the time. What are you hearing? What are you hearing? What are you hearing? He was asking me that much as much as I was inquiring about how things were going on his end with his communications with MSU. And it was a devastating, devastating day that afternoon when the word came down that Muddy Waters had gotten a job, Sally was crying and George was just disintegrated with grief over missing that job that he had dreamed about. And then uh, lo and behold, three years later, we're back on the phone. <laughs> and uh, this time MSU didn't fool around. Uh, I picked him up literally at the airport when he flew into Capital City Airport. Uh, for his introduction speech the next day. And uh, he and I, uh, in Joe Falls, went over and, and got a suite um, at uh, one of the East Lansing hotels that's no longer around. And we sat and did a tape-recorded Q&A with him for about two hours. Um, this was what George would do. He was an extremely hospitable man. And I had shared in some of that hospitality at his home a couple of times uh, when the Skywriters were there and George and Scotch were good buddies. And uh, he didn't mind <laughs> having maybe one more than he should have had uh, at any time at those particular events. And yet it made him so utterly endearing to so many people because that was how he viewed life. You have people into your home, you have some good food, you have some very good drink, and then have some more very good drink, and uh, you enjoy yourself immensely. And that was George all the way through. Now, he and I went at it a couple of times. I mean, went at it. One night, I got into a, we got into a screaming contest right at practice. That's when I, I could go to practice. 
and and I mean, he was upset with a story I'd written about Mark Ingram, and it was something to do. Mark was having some issue of some sort. Anyway, he and he and I went toe to toe. Five minutes later, we're in his office talking football. The fight was over. You're back having the same kind of straight up conversation about football. That was also George. No grievances, uh, no revenge, no write-offs. We were all in this thing called life together, and that's why I loved him. I absolutely loved George Perlis and had such a good friendship with him, Frank, played professional friendship with him after his coaching days, uh, right up until the point that he passed on. Who haven't you gone toe-to-toe with? I've heard stories of you having some nice uh, nice throwdowns with some people over the years. <laughs> there, there, have been, there, have been, there have been more than I, I, I dare recount here today. But uh, that, that, as we know, Tony, that goes with uh, our profession. Oh, and uh, usually when you have the toe-to-toes, it makes for more mutual respect. They've gotten something off their chest that they had a right to uh, express. Uh, you've explained some realities about journalism that maybe they hadn't thought about. Mm-hmm. And from that, it's kind of like forging, I think, uh, or tempering wood in fire. I, I really do believe it strengthens the, the mutual respect. And that's all you want to take in this job, uh, as you would agree, is respect. Yeah. Just so that we can say at the end of the day, what we did here was an effort that was respected by readers and by the people um, in these uh, coaching and sports circles, uh, we're privileged to travel. That's what you only hope to take is respect. Right. No, I've had, I've had, yeah, I've had the dragouts. I've had a couple of midnight phone calls, screaming matches. One with a front office executive in this town, another with a co- head division <laughs> one head coach. And uh, but you know, you're right. At the end of the conversation, and they both lasted. I mean, these are the most recent ones. They both lasted about a half hour. Just we're both screaming at each other, and at the end of it. You know, it's funny how things can turn around because, you know, if you stand your ground and, and you know, and don't push right. over and they stand their ground and you understand each other, you know, at the end of the conversation, you're laughing and joking. And that's kind of the way it goes. And, well, that's know, also, Tony, and, and I appreciate your, your, your own experiences there. And I think what you would agree is, look, if I've gotten something wrong, then I will correct it. No, of course. Uh, but, but, if, but if it's not wrong and, and, and you just simply didn't like it, uh, we're probably going to remain here at odds on that. Uh, but here's the reason uh, journalism requires me to be as straight with the facts as I can. Right. Be, and, and here's where it's bruising uh, your particular feelings. But uh, this is a national stage on which you particularly perform. And uh, it's going to have to be uh, uh, treated as such uh, in in my news presentations. Now, there's matters of sensitivity. We can talk nuance here all we want. Mm-hmm. You always bring that to the picture too. But primarily, you want to be straight and sensitive and, and accurate. That Fundamentally, that is your responsibility in this job, to be accurate, honest, and also sensitive. You can be those things, and uh, it uh, absolutely is being straight with your audience. Yeah. You know, I, I think that that's what people... And especially in, in this era where the media is under attack um, so relentlessly um, yeah. because of whether it's a certain president or whether it's the creation of Twitter, whatever, the media is under attack. And I think that so many people don't understand how hard we work, sports writers, news writers, political writers, whatever, to get facts right and to be accurate right and to get the story told as 
close to the truth as possible. Uh, and I think that a lot of people don't understand that. And I, and, uh, and it's sad that we're under assault. Uh, it's sad that newspapers are losing employees. Pat Caputo was laid off yesterday, mm-hmm. uh, a tragedy. Um, for a guy who spent 37 years at one paper, um, more of that it will be coming, I'm sure, given everything that's going on. Yeah, so when you, I just don't want to get off on a tangent, but when you talk about the truth and trying to be accurate, people don't understand. Like we want, I mean, I've made mistakes. I've made big ones. Um, I was wrong on some things, and I hate it. It gnawed at me for you know days and weeks. You know, if I get something wrong, and I think people don't understand just how much we care about the truth. I think that that's, uh, that's something that not a lot of people grasp, especially in this era. Um, no, it's, 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 it's the difference between journalism and sports writing. Yeah. Uh, right. Known there, and there's a huge difference there. People don't understand yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. You know, there are writers and there are reporters, and uh, there's a big difference. Um, uh, best athlete, most gifted athlete at Michigan State. I think I know who you're going to say that you covered. Yeah. Kirk Gibson. Of course, of course. Uh, what, when, what was your first introduction to him? And, and, <laughs> and what was, uh, and uh, when did you first see him? What was like? uh, Opening, uh, or rather the second game of the season, 1975, a week after uh, they had lost Ohio State in the epic rematch after the huge 1974 Levi Jackson run that upset Ohio State. And Gibson, they had beaten, I think it was Bowling Green that day. And um, I'm in the uh, locker room afterwards. Uh, this was my second, just before I hired back in at the State Journal in Lansing, uh, I'd been at the Battle Creek Inquirer, my first job at, after graduation. So I'm in there covering that game that day for, for Battle Creek for a couple more weeks. And uh, I want to get to Gibson, who, who'd done something in the game, and he says, he says, and he's 18 years old. He's three months <laughs> out of high school. He says, I'm not talking. He says, you guys dogged our ass last week, and I'm not talking. <laughs> That's Kirk Gibson at 18. <laughs> Those are exactly his words. Uh. So right then I knew uh, <laughs> we had ourselves a little bit of a maverick here. Uh, interestingly, though, uh, by the time that uh, uh, I had come back to Lansing, I began again that fall of 75, now 78, I'm covering that team for the State Journal, uh, that 78 football team, Daryl Rogers, Eddie Smith, uh, Kurt Gibson, Mark Bramer, Gene Bird, Steve Smith, all those guys. It was a great offensive football team. Uh, they, had, they averaged 40-some points in, in the Big Ten, and Gibson was a big part of that. But by that point, I'd gotten to know him, and he'd gotten to know how I worked. And it gets back to, dare I say, those words, mutual respect. And there were things I wrote that, believe me, he wasn't happy about any more than some of the other guys in that locker room were. Um, Even as they had a spectacular season, they had a bad start, and I wrote accordingly and blamed a few psychological conditions for that. And boy, I tell you, I went through uh, uh, a gauntlet there. But Gibson respected me. And uh, I guess that's the reason why I ended up co-writing his book um, 20 years later. Bottom of the Ninth uh, came out in 1997, available on Amazon, four and a half stars. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, 
anyway, I, I really found him to be the most fascinating creature I've ever covered. Uh, and I mean, what a, what an amazing guy. People don't understand one thing about him, Tony. His cerebral skills are up there with his physical skills. They, they always thought he was just sort of a jock who just, you know, well, he, he, he agreed. He majored in, as he said, I majored in, uh, um, eligibility at, at Michigan State. But, <laughs> but, but that wasn't uh, an expression of his intellect. His intellect is, again, as high horsepower as his running skills or any other aspect of his dynamism. And um, so I found him. Now, I went to Detroit in 79, which, as it turns out, was the same year he came up with the Tigers in 79 after that storybook a turnaround from being a football star to a, to a baseball star. And I'm writing about that today for, for today's Detroit news. But uh, he was consistently, Tony, the most fascinating athlete person uh, I've ever covered. Um, there is not even, frankly, a close second there. Uh, he, he's in another realm because of that duality of, of mental agility and of course his uh, awesome unmatched physical skills which that combination to me uh, is a marvel yet we talked earlier about some of the blow-ups you've had and in toe-to-toe battles and i know that as uh, and you've had a relationship with gibson since the 70s you wrote a book with him but i also know you've had run-ins with him in the oh, we did, yeah. And I, there's one I remember. I'm not sure if that's true, but give me one example uh, uh, oh. of, of a run-in with Gibson. I think, I, hopefully, it's the one I'm thinking. It was at Comerica Park in uh, 2005, uh, and Alan Trammell was still manager. And, of course, Gibson and Trammell, very, very, very close. Kirk was coaching uh, on the team. And I had been pretty tough on the Tigers that spring. It was 05, and we're in how many years now of a rebuild, and this thing isn't really going anywhere. And I said it was just really kind of a hodgepodge of the team. Uh, and, and and it really wasn't, frankly, uh, as Jim Leland was about to prove a year later, it wasn't a team. It was a quilt work of people. Now, I'm not blaming anyone for that because this was still in a state of reconstruction, uh, two years after they had lost 119 games. But I had pointed out what I thought were some realities, and he, he was not happy. So I came down, and uh, I'm walking on the corridor, and he's coming, and I said, uh, you know, hi, Kirk. Boy, he says, you've been bitter lately. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, you've been bitter. And then, anyway, we went at it. And, I mean, it was like a bad saloon fight. <laughs> chairs were flying and beer cups and mugs were, were crashing. And I mean, in that sense, next thing I know, all the Tigers are at the clubhouse door fighting to get their heads through the door to see this, this okay at the gun, gunfight at the okay corral. And I mean, it was, it was loud, loud. It was as high decibel a screaming match as I've ever been involved with. And this is a guy that, uh, you know, I presumably had a good relationship with professionally for 20, 30 years. But I knew what he was doing. I knew what he was doing. He was showing his manager and friend and his team that he wasn't going to put up with uh, hinting sentiments here, uh, no matter if uh, I had written his book and so forth. But I mean, it went on like a nuclear blast for a good couple of minutes. And, and it was 
it was a five megaton bomb. Yeah. And, um, and, and yet, um, afterward, um, it took a while, I suppose, <laughs> but it, it, he knew what he was doing. I knew what he was doing. I didn't give him any ground. He didn't give any ground, of course. And it was not just toe to toe. It was, uh, it was, it was, it was up there in, uh, Ali Frazier land as far as uh, verbals go. I'll tell you that right now. Um, and I believe what, what spurred this and, uh, if correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure that you criticized them for keeping Bobby Higginson on the roster. Oh, and, yes, um, that was and, part of it. And uh, Higginson obviously was close with um, Gibson. Um, and when Higginson came up, you know, he had a Gibson type flair about him. Um, you know, so yeah. there was, you know, they both played right field, and um, uh, but uh, you ended up being right. I mean, Higginson's career was over, and uh, I mean, well, and Marcus played, Tim, played, yeah, yeah. And Tony, you're right about that. It, it, they, they really made a political move down there to keep Higginson. They were all set to keep Marcus Thames and, and let Higginson go. And as much as I really liked Bobby Higginson, I had an immensely fine professional relationship with him. And, and he was hurt by what I wrote. Um, and I, I couldn't do it any differently. Uh, Marcus Thames had been jobbed. He, had, he deserved to make the team. And within a few weeks, um, he was back up. And, of course, he stayed and became an integral force up there for a, a few seasons. But Higginson never let me really off the hook for that. And I, and I feel as badly about that probably um, 20 years later as I feel about uh, anything. Um, and I'll tell you what, what the deal was there, uh, too. You're right. Kirk was very, very miffed about that. Um, Trammell, I know, was not happy. The front office probably wasn't happy. It didn't matter. I had thought it was a clear case of injustice, and I wrote it. But it was definitely, you're right, it was a factor in um, the uh, hydrogen bomb that uh, Gibson and I uh, participated in that morning in the corridor. Yeah, I remember that story. You've, uh, you told some great stories, too, in your retirement um, column, which I, I urge people to read. It's at DetroitNews.com. Uh, I guess I call it your retirement column, but you just won't it go was, away. Yeah. <laughs> you just no, keep it coming was. back. Um, well, no, thanks. it was. No, yeah. no, and we, we're, we're, we're glad to have you back. Um, just, uh, well, you mentioned earlier you're gonna, you have a, a story coming up about Gibson and um, coming up in, in 79 <laughs> and how I think you almost had to revert back to football. Um, yeah, but that's part of your behind-the-scenes features that you've been doing weekly for the Detroit News. You've already you've written one about Saban. You've written one about a huge Bill Frieder, Bobby Knight blow-up. These are all at DetroitNews.com. They're so good. We are glad to have you back. Um, we're just going to touch on a few more things. If you, I don't want to delay your tea time. If you have a tea time set up, I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to keep it's you. Five o'clock. <laughs> okay, I don't want to keep you I'm and good. Susie from the first tea. Um, but I wanted to touch, and we talk about, you know, we talk about D'Antonio and how he looked tired and how, you know, it looked like the end. One guy who never looks tired is Tom Izzo, who looks like he still yeah. has the energy, energy that he had um, when he was younger and still has just relentlessly pursuing um, that second national championship. And you know he's just so bummed that he didn't get a crack at it this year. Um, but uh, 
when did you when did you get introduced to him? I mean, did you know him well as an assistant coach? Yes. Uh, and tell oh, me, and, and did you see him as the future head coach? What did you when he was hired? What did you think was going to happen? Did you see him succeeding? Tell me a little bit about what you saw in him when you first got in, had an encounter. I had known him on Judd's staff. Uh, I had known that he was really doing most of Judd's recruiting uh, because Judd didn't recruit, uh, not well anyway. And uh, yet here was a guy, Tony, uh, at the time, you thought, gee, shouldn't Michigan State go national on this thing? They can get a lot of good basketball talent in here uh, that is now existent coast to coast. You just have to identify it. Sure enough, though, um, Judd held out for, for the appointment of Tom, and Judd knew. And Judd knew what we were to find out, and that is Tom Izzo was even 10 times more equipped to take that job than any of us had anticipated. Um, liked him from the start. <laughs> You'll find this a little bit intriguing. I actually played golf in the summer of 95, in June of 95. Played golf at Walnut Hills with Saban and Tom Izzo and my buddy Norm Sinclair, uh, this was before either of them had had their first season. They were just heading into their first seasons. And little did I know I was going to be uh, playing golf that day, even for as well as I knew the two, with two Hall of Fame coaches. Mm. Uh, because neither one of them had, had of course, at that point, uh, uh, come close to establishing the legacies that they've, they've since woven. But uh, now Tom, I, I think, who shot what that day? Come on. <laughs> oh, I, I can tell you. Well, Tom and I took money off uh, Saban and Sinclair. How's that? And I made the last putt of the day to seal that. So I, I, I've got at least one, one putt in my life that I can cite with some pride. Uh, but um, we had a really good, good day, though. And, um, it, it, again, I'm, I'm only sorry I don't have any photos from that because it would have been – pretty nice to have had something from that day out at Walnut Hills with two coaches who were about to become uh, truly landmark figures. Uh, but, but Tom, By the way, rest, in peace, you, rest in peace to Walnut Hills. That's close. Yeah, now. I know. I, I couldn't have been more sick about hearing that news, but that goes with so many other golf courses. But, but really, Tony, you have to remember until that fall of 97 or 98, 99, when they caught fire, uh, no one really knew if, if Tom's deal was going to work out there. And, and, of course, it was like a rocket ship taking off that 98-99 uh, season, and, and he's been Tom Izzo ever since. But there's no one, and I don't even believe Judd thought, of course, that Tom was going to have the kind of uh, effect he was uh, destined to have up there. Uh, but uh, he, he is the most remarkable collection of Again, basketball smarts, basketball intensity, and personal decency that I think you can meld in one coach, which uh, speaks uh, to why he's had the success he's had there. Well, how long do you see him going? That is the question I know everybody's asking. And uh, for a guy that was, uh, gee, talking 15 years ago about you know, not wanting to coach all that lengthily into his life, uh, I'd be surprised if he's back in a way. It's a shame he was denied that tournament this year because it was wide open and the way State was playing, uh, there mm -hmm. could have been some really interesting things happen there. But uh, 
I'll bet you he's going to go another two or three years. Um, I, I don't think he's ready to, to hang it up quite yet. And when you look at guys like Krzyzewski and Beheim, who are coaching now in their 70s, Tom might decide that, uh, yeah, it, it, it's going to be good for maybe five more years or so. Uh, I don't think you can make assumptions there, but uh, it, it's going to be a, an adjustment, uh, obviously, uh, the day that uh, he departs and somebody takes over uh, the uh, unmatched uh, act that is going to be required to follow Tom Izzo. So it, this is going to be something we'll watch with intrigue. Yeah. You know, the one thing that really wears coaches down um, is recruiting, um, especially as they get older. And uh, the interesting thing is, is I've talked to a ton of athletic directors, and obviously recruiting right now is all online. No one's going anywhere. It's changed the game. Um, I've talked to a lot of athletic directors that are going to, uh, that say that recruiting is going to become a, a different ballgame. It's going to be less travel, especially as budgets crunch. So I wonder if that yeah. eases, eases, I wonder if it does change um, over time, if that does ease some of the, the stress and the fatigue from a guy like Izzo and maybe keeps him around another couple of years. Uh, who knows? And that's a good thought. Um, I, I wouldn't be surprised you're on uh, some, some solid ground there. Uh, because that's the thing that ultimately takes it out of college coaches faster than anything, particularly on the basketball end, is having to recruit nonstop. And uh, if you could uh, lessen that to some degree, you might gain from him another couple of years or more. Yeah, yeah. Now, a lot of the athletic directors, are, they're saying it's working now, and all these schools are going to have huge budget issues coming very, very soon. And one of the biggest expenses on athletic departments is travel for recruiting. And, and uh, so they say that that's going to get cut back even at the bigger institutions. So it'll be interesting to watch. Um, any big run-ins with Izzo other than the one that's on YouTube? <laughs> oh, no. And that, that, that's kind of, that's, that's a weird situation too. Cause Tom and I had a great relationship. have had one since we were on the phone, you know, very quickly afterward. And it, it might, problem that night was not with Tom. No. Uh, it was with, uh, primarily, uh, uh, it was with uh, the president. Let me recap this really quick for those who don't know. Uh, back during the Izzo Cavaliers kind of dance that was going on, is, was Izzo going to go to Cleveland? Was he going to come back to Michigan State? It kind of lasted seven, eight days, whatever. Um, Izzo decided to return. They held a press conference. It was carried live on all the TV stations. And the MSU used that opportunity, including Luana Simon, uh, used that opportunity to criticize the media uh, for the coverage on the Izzo stuff. And you took exception to that. And uh, that's that lives on today on YouTube. And by the way, I want to say a lot of people thought, you know, obviously you were never going to win in that situation because no one's going to side with Izzo, of course. But I got to say, I appreciated it. I thought that, you know, they were out of line. Um, with the, you know, I mean, if they're going to have this big press conference for Izzo, just, you know, have the press conference and have celebration day. Don't start it off, you know, with this, again, this critique of the media. I just thought it was ridiculous. So anyway, that's, that's the setup on what, what you're talking about. Yeah. And I had uh, a, a couple of uh, really pronounced problems with what happened there that night. First of all, as you said, Tony, this was supposed to have been a celebratory occasion. It had been this nine day vigil in which Tom Izzo had been on the precipice of going to the NBA. So instead of a celebratory press conference, they decided to turn it into an orchestrated media bashing. 
and uh, Luana had gotten off on the wrong tack immediately with that. Uh, it was then left to Mark Hollis to reinforce what she had said and then to Tom to follow up. Look, I said to Michigan State that night, you guys have sought to be in the, on the national stage for years and years with basketball. You've achieved you got that it. elevation. Yeah. <laughs> right. And you wonder why this story for nine days has been incessantly reported? It's because of your prominence in Tom Izzo's prominence. So don't tell me here that this is a one-way street. No, it's a two-way street. You're not going to shut off these adoring fans or all of the basketball realm in college America that's equally interested here in what Tom Izzo is going to do. There hadn't been any, any grave offenses from, from that coverage. Luana that night cited something about uh, a tweet from Cleveland. Well, no kidding. But you're going to have this story reported nonstop because people's interest and intrigue and their suspense is nonstop. To do less is not to be doing right here. But because it was an irritation to them, they were going to come out and bash it. So I got caught up in the crossfire that night, and my mistake was not getting out of the debate earlier. I frankly tried about three times. But I, you know, Tom was enjoying that, as you said. Oh, he, 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 he held the it. hammer on that. He put he puts on a show. That's what he does. And oh, he was, lo- he and loved every never... second of it. He loved everything. <laughs> yeah. and, and you know, I knew that. He knew that. And there has there was never any recurring um, problem with with Tom. No, we were on the phone very shortly afterwards. I couldn't think more, Tom, as of that had that was just an aberration. Unfortunately, it was a a. a uh, it was the worst part is it sucked the air out of the press conference. Suddenly they're calling an end to it. And it's most of it's been a debate between uh, he and I, and, and I was sorry about that. Uh, that that's, that's what I had a regret about, not about the stance that was taken, but simply that it had uh, eroded uh, the rest of the press conference. Well, your stance was correct. And um, it, it, it went on, you know, you both were at fault that it went on. Um, you know, you, I mean, you you both had played a role in it going on. When the, yeah, I get why that might be a regret, but whatever. I don't know. And by the way, I still watch it at least once a year on YouTube. It cheers me up. I enjoy it. <laughs> I think it's a it's a classic moment uh, because it was just fun. I mean, you you know, you and Izzo going back and forth. And then, like you said, you know, people were bent out of shape, obviously, because they're always going to side of the MSU. You know, the MSU fans. Oh yeah, know, it's, it's the anti media thing. But you're right. Izzo loved it. He could put on a show like anybody. He loved it just as much as you did, um, so I, I thought it was great. Um, what about Judd? You got a you got a good Judd story? Oh, jeez, Judd and I, <laughs> Judd and I, I tell you, there were people that uh, wondered uh, uh, how long I was for this earth because there was going to be a homicide. Uh, that he and I, and the irony is, it was at the point that Magic was on the team and they were having their greatest success. But Judd is and was and will always remain the person most sensitive to the written word of anyone I've ever seen in my life, not even uh, a near second there. And so every comma or semicolon that he disagreed with uh, would really create fury for him. And, oh, my God, uh, Tony, it was, it, was, it was ugly in some post-game press conferences. It was ugly at uh, – 
a couple of uh, uh, Monday luncheons over at the Kellogg's or over at uh, the International Center where we used to have a, a Monday press briefing. It was ugly at the NCAA tournament. It was ugly, ugly, ugly. Now, when it was all said and done, Judd was Judd. He and I had as terrific of a professional relationship in the ensuing years as you could have had. But during the heat of the season, when Judd was hypersensitive to the written word, and I was a columnist at the Lansing State Journal, opinion was not going to work with, with Judd unless it was his opinion. And uh, he went cataclysmic on me um, uh, numerous times. And it would, uh, conversations with my bosses, you know, furious conversations with my bosses. And it, it, got on the, it got on the radio. It got everywhere. I mean, it, it nearly upstaged the NCAA tournament. <laughs> I remember, you know, anyway, I could, I could go on and on. But the stories had really, um, the columns, he, he just didn't, um, he, he, viewed, he viewed opinion that wasn't, in his mind, uplifting and upbeat as, quote, unquote, negative. Well, in Judd using the word negative, I would use the word positive because I believe in being truthful and honest and straightforward in your reporting and in your assessments. And I was being that way. It doesn't mean my marks were perfect, perfect, perfect on every paragraph, but they, they were certainly uh, when you consider the bulk of the work that I did there all up through those years. I wasn't writing anything that was separate from fact. It was separate from what the community was seeing. And yet, uh, boy, Judd and I went to Creek, and he got really upset. I, I, you know, his, his tendency to go berserk at officials made him, in the minds of one official who I did a behind-the-scenes anonymous source column with, the toughest official in the Big Ten to work with. Mm. And he was going ballistic that that senior or that 1978-79 uh, season. And I did a column, and the, and the headline was, Judd should calm down. <laughs> and it was absolutely right. Well, except in the minds of Judd and Bev Heathcote and, and, and a couple of assistants and so forth. Uh, but the players respected what I was saying. I can tell you that. Magic respected what I was writing. And Greg Kelser respected what I was writing. And Jay Vincent did. And those guys knew what I was writing was correct. They were having <laughs> their, their internal squabbles with Judd, too. And uh, that didn't always create for great relationships between coach and players. But he was excellent. He was the funniest coach I've ever known in my entire life without even anywhere near a runner-up. And he and I had a very, very strong relationship. Uh, and all the years after uh, I finally left town and headed for Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's classic stuff. Uh, classic stuff. Oh, uh, so uh, we talked about it uh, again. You're still writing for us. I want to just tell people uh, a little bit about what you have coming up. The behind the scenes column uh, on Kirk Gibson is coming up. When's that going to be running? Uh, that will be running, I think, by the end of the afternoon. This is what two thirty on Wednesday afternoon. Right. So that so should, it should already be up by yeah, uh, should be up uh, by the time you're listening to this. It should be at DetroitNews.com. Um, you've got some previous installments too, which these are great. I, I think people love going inside baseball, behind the scenes, you know. I, I think people yeah. really enjoy that. Uh, and this is a perfect time, obviously, given the no live sport. It's a perfect time 
to really kind of relive some of these things that people don't know about. And so um, these are really excellent, well done. Um, you also have an interest, I believe you have a story coming up this weekend or in a few days. Um, you're talking to Spencer Torkelson, is that correct? Uh, he and I have been in touch uh, after I uh, met him out in uh, Arizona in February and did a big piece on him. And uh, he, he's trying to maintain uh, some degree of privacy, but uh, I've been getting um, uh, some updates from him. Okay. And I think he is going to be the first overall player taken, of course, by the Tigers once his draft happens. And uh, they're going to get a uh, tremendous player and hitter uh, when he uh, suits up. There's no doubt in my mind about that, Tony. Yeah, so he's the guy. So when I read yeah. these stories of saying, oh, the Tigers aren't sold on a hitter yet, that, ah. that's, that's crap. Yeah. yeah. No, that's... no, they're going to take Torkelson, and uh, they should take Torkelson. Uh, he is uh, going to be uh, a dynamo, mm -hmm. and uh, he, he's really a, a, a good, solid person, too. He's a gentleman, and uh, I think the fan base is going to fall in love with this guy. Mm -hmm. Another interesting story you wrote for us recently touching on the, how this pandemic shutdown is particularly devastating for the Tigers, especially given yeah. their, especially given their, this was the year we were going to start to see some of the fruits of their, of their labor as far right. as drafting pitchers and these young guns. And now these guys are shut down and their development's going to be pushed back. Um, touch on it. Touch on that. Well, on kind of why it affects them more than maybe another team. As you know, uh, their real strength and, and really the foundation for this rebuild is incredibly good starting pitching. And just at the point, Tony, that they were about to hit Comerica Park, they're losing the worst possible thing you can lose this year, and that's developmental competitive innings. So getting these arms built up, again, in a game versus throwing bullpens is a whole different deal, as you know, and everyone else does. And that is being ripped from this program's rebuild right now. And it couldn't be affecting a team really much more harshly than it is the, the Tigers. So this is going to be tough. Uh, and then you have to worry when you do bring them back, you have to be careful that they don't run into injuries and overextend. And it, it just makes a hash of what uh, was looking like a fairly good time frame uh, for these players to begin showing up at Comerica Park. But, uh, hey, in the world of a pandemic, um, there, there are casualties and, and catastrophes far greater, and um, we have to think about that in perspective. But uh, it, it definitely did nail this team uh, right in the nose here uh, at, at a point that was very pivotal in this rebuild. I think we're going to have baseball. I don't expect it. Uh, I really don't. I, I don't think we're going to have football. I don't think we're going to have baseball. I don't think we're going to have 20, 20 sports. And until the medicine experts and the medical and scientific minds of expertise uh, lead me to believe differently, uh, I won't change my mind there. But I think, Tony, we're in trouble. Yeah, uh, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's everybody's, you know, all these timelines, oh, we're going to restart this day, and then they're all getting pushed back, and the writing's on the yeah. wall. I mean, even without the fans, and I, I certainly don't think there will be any fans at anything 
in 2020 for sure. Um, no. You know, if they do come back, it will be without the fans. But uh, everything, you know, until something actually gets going, uh, it's going to be hard to believe that uh, anything's coming back. It's uh, so surreal. Uh, but like you said, a lot, uh, a lot bigger issues out there than the sports world, which leads me to my final question. You uh, are you back on Twitter, by the way? I see you kind of lurking. Again. Yeah, I did. I, I, I took a sabbatical and uh, I, I needed to because I felt <laughs> it was uh, over absorbing me, uh, you might say. And, and I really did believe I needed to step back. So I took about a three month break from it. And I've come back with. Um, what you might call self-imposed restrictions. I, I'm just <laughs> making it more balanced than I used to in terms of my time spent with it, Tony. But yeah. I do like being back. I, I think there's too much to talk about. And uh, and yet, as long as I don't let it become some kind of a, obsessive presence, um, I, I think I can work that uh, uh, balance out strictly for myself. Uh, and I'm happy with that. Yeah. Well, when you were at the news, um, officially, you're still writing for us, and again, we're thrilled about that. But when you read the news, you were very, you and I were considered um, two people that um, had Twitter accounts that maybe didn't align with our publishers' <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, 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 terms of terms of service, or, or you know, or you know, policy, or whatever. You know, um, we both are a little outspoken, um, uh, for better or worse. Um, I guess what what do you think is what do you think in the state of, in the world of journalism is acceptable um, um, as far as you know being outspoken like that you and oh, I, I think, both, uh, well, you and I both do it and I, I I I've gotten called under the carpet a few times from the bosses and I I feel bad about it but I also feel like there's just too much important stuff going on in the world that I just can't shut up about. Agreed. Uh, we're ultimate practitioners of the First Amendment. Mm. And the idea that we would be selling that freedom that must be treasured and celebrated, uh, selling it short, uh, to me, is, uh, is, is heresy. Uh, I, I know what they're saying. They, they don't want somebody who is uh, objectively covering a particular um, subject or topic uh, to begin opinionating uh, wildly and recklessly and then expecting that that person's objectivity is is going to be uh, acknowledged by a reader. I don't think it's an either or. Uh, on the contrary, I think good reporting objectivity is in fact enhanced by being a straight and, and sharp analyst. And yes, that is going to result in some opinions. There's plenty of room for opinions. Uh, that's why we have columns. And you can uh, be a, a reporter on a particular subject or topic or entity and also columnize about it. The, the trick is to bring integrity to both endeavors. And that goes to Twitter. And uh, that was my position. And it remains my position. And that's why I continued uh, to discuss, as you said, at this very important time in world history, uh, anything relative to uh, the scene in the White House and in Washington, D.C., or the Supreme Court, if that uh, is uh, an area of discussion, as for me, it's an abiding interest, or on this pandemic, 
or any other subject that affects people in this world and in this nation, I think we have not only a right, but an obligation to speak and to speak with uh, journalistic savvy and, and with a commitment to being straight. And uh, that uh, is my creed as we continue to talk here on Twitter. It's funny, I was talking, I did a story on uh, talking to Jeff Daniels the other day, uh, and he had some alkaline memories, which were great. Yes, I saw story, that. Very good story about them. <clears throat> and that's online, which you can check out. But um, I had to ask him about my favorite show, The Newsroom, which, of course, he was in. And I said, Jeff, when are you, <laughs> when are you, when are you going to reboot this thing? Like, now you have to reboot this thing, given everything that's going on. And he says to me, he just laughed. And he goes, he goes, I don't think Aaron Sorkin or Will McAvoy could keep up. And uh, I thought that was a good point. <laughs> given, given I saw your tweet on that. I loved it. <laughs> given everything that's gone on in the world and everything. But um, you're retired. Are you less stressed? Are you enjoying life? Is everything good? Oh, life is very blessed, Tony, uh, it, it, to the nth degree. Uh, not only, again, was I not thrown out of full-time work uh, by the pandemic, and, and again, I know how many tens of millions have been. Uh, so I caught a break there, and Susie's happily retired from her teaching profession. And we have three lovely grandkids here on the island, five, three, and one, and I'm with them constantly, and I've never had more pure joy, I think, in my life than with these three beauties. Uh, so I have a lot of time with them. I have great friends down here, thanks to Susie. Um, I have uh, Sea Island Golf Club over here that uh, we'll be adjourning to here in a couple hours. Uh, it, it's It's just a marvelous place. We'll go for some of these long walks that we take, we can on the beach because there's hardly anybody on it and you can go for forever and, and it's extremely safe and, and it's extremely beautiful. Um, it, it's kind of one of these areas that is something of a secret. It's got all of the, I guess, the, the splendor that Florida would offer climatically without the congestion. Uh, it, it, there's, a, there's a real low country kind of a, a, an essence to this. And it's just a wonderful place to live. I am uh, beyond fortunate, Tony. And, and yet it's beautiful to be able to retain a connection with the Detroit News and to continue to work along with all of you here because uh, journalism is our craft. It's our profession. It's our vocation. And uh, to remain uh, attached to it to this degree is really, really cool. Well, uh, lucky man. <laughs> um, yeah. and again, and again, um, Lane continues to write for the news. He's got these behind the scenes features that run once a week. I mean, he's covering, um, the lead up to the draft, which we believe will happen on time. It'll probably, it'll be virtual, of course, like the NFL draft. Um, they'll limit the rounds, but the Tigers do have the number one overall pick. And so he'll, he'll be definitely, uh, in the fold for the Detroit news for that. And, um, uh, again, they are mentioned throughout this, um, uh, this podcast, but you know, before I started working in the news, I owned all three of these books and read them multiple <laughs> times before I ever met um, Spartan Seasons, which came out in 2003, Spartan Seasons 2, which really, really stuck with me because that was a lot during my time at Michigan State. There's Saban stuff, there's Smokers, Jeff Smoker stuff in there. Um, that really was uh, fascinating to me, Spartan Seasons 2, and then bottom of the ninth, which I grew up the biggest Kirk Gibson fan in the world. Like that was my guy as when I was five, six years old, he was my hero right up until the time he ran me over 
uh, at Comerica Park. But uh, <laughs> uh, but bottom of the ninth, which you uh, which you wrote with Gibson, which is just phenomenal. So those are all still available on Amazon, and all have five and or four and a half stars. Incredible stuff. So um, they must everyone must have enjoyed it as much as I did. So and well, I also it's nice when they allow me to determine how many stars <laughs> they get. Well, I'll be honest, two of them only have one review, so that must have been a buddy of yours. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but hey, five stars is five stars on Amazon, so that's all that matters. Uh, I also really enjoyed this podcast. Uh, it's gone on way too long, but that's what happens when I get talking with you because you have some fascinating stories, and I appreciate you coming on. Um, enjoy uh, retirement. Keep in touch, and uh, play some good golf today, and my, all my best to Susie. You got a deal, Tony. Enjoyed it as always, buddy. All right. Thanks, Lynn.